Are you there in Revelation 2? We're going to continue our series, Unveiling Jesus. Right now, we are in the midst of an examination of the seven letters that Jesus dictated to John to be given to these churches. And I'm entitling this message, Personalized. I remember when I was a kid, in, you know, in, my, in, in the late 1970s, I had just come to Christ, a teenager, and I remember reading Crossing the Switchblade. Has anyone ever read that or seen the movie? Okay, Crossing the Switchblade. And I'll be honest with you, when Nicky Cruz comes to Christ, I got jealous of his testimony. Have you ever been jealous of someone's testimony? Like, wow, what an amazing testimony. Look at what a rotten sinner he was or she was. Yeah, but look what God did. Look how they changed. Look how they're serving God today. And it's like, wow, God, I want a demonstration of that kind of grace in my life. All right. And then later, as I was done the book, I, I, I began to, to be jealous of Pat Boone's testimony, uh, uh, David Wilkerson's testimony, right? Yeah, you, you've not seen the movie. Never mind. And so I, I just, I saw uh, David Wilkerson. And just his heart for these gangs and his willingness to lay down his life so that some, at least some, might come to know Jesus. You know what? Sometimes I think we can be jealous of others' testimonies, of the display of God's grace and God's reckless love that we were singing about just now in their lives and just kind of wondering, wow, you know, I would love to have a testimony like that. Of course, minus all the scars and wounds that they had before they came to Christ, right? You know, we can bypass that. But the truth is, God has poured out his grace upon us. You have a dynamic testimony. And I'm going to just tell you this. It is not just a testimony of how Christ rescued you. For some of you, like me, I grew up in a Christian home, heard the gospel like forever, 24-7, 365. Any chance my mom had, she would sit down with me and read the Bible to me. I would even play sick, confession now, Sunday mornings, just so I could stay home, but she would stay home with me and read the Bible to me. I couldn't get away from a church. And eventually at 14, it's like a light, I had a light bulb moment in which I understood and I fell for this amazing grace of God displayed on the cross and by Jesus' resurrection. And I was changed forever. I was changed. He's still in this process of changing me. I've not arrived yet. One day I will but just not here on earth, but that is a display of God's grace. And, and honestly, many of you have been, you've grown up in Christian home. You've, you, there was a time perhaps in which there was a greater depth of understanding. You may not even know the exact day in which you were saved, and you would be able to step back and say, eh, what's, what's the amazing grace of God in that testimony? But can I just tell you this, even though there is not this stark contrast between when you were a lost sinner and when you were a saved saint, God regularly longs to pour out his grace to you. And it is all of this, when you were saved, even before you were saved, when you got saved, the grace of God being poured out into your life, even now, that is the testimony of God's grace in your life. And I'm going to tell you this, God is so anxious to pour out his grace in your life that he will purposefully allow you in situations where your back is up against the wall, where you are crying out to him. And now it's, it's one of those moments for God in which he says, yes, and your heart is looking to him desperate for his grace. Those are the moments in which God pours out his grace. God does it in, in, in times in which we are not crying out to him in desperation either, but times in which we just feel hurt or things happen or there's a need, just a simple need, and God pours out his grace. I'm calling this message personalized because I want you to know that even though Nikki Cruz has an amazing testimony of God's grace, you have an equally amazing testimony of his grace. We're going to see that. The, the sermon I'm going to divide into three sections, but I'm going to camp out in the last one. So I'm going to need to rush so I can do that. 
but the first section is about trials, and we pretty much looked at that last week, so I don't want to spend too much time there. We're going to see something that I believe happened in the church at Pergamum as a result of these trials that he then challenges, and then we're just going to spend some time in that section where it says, to him who overcomes. These are his promises that we will receive fully when we're, when we're with him, okay? So let me read the passage to us. It's only about seven verses, and we're going to start there. Revelation 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live. Now, that's a positive thing, okay? Most of the time when we say, hey, I know where you live, that's a negative thing. Like, I know where you live, and if you treat me wrong, I'm coming after you. That's not what he's saying here. I know where you live. We need to sense his compassion in that where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those, excuse me, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Amen. <laughs> now, we discovered that every letter begins very personal to the church, to the angel of the church, in a particular city, and then he launches into one or two, generally two, descriptions of himself that John saw with his eyes in Revelation chapter 1. Do you remember that? And he heard a voice behind him, and he turned around, and he saw Jesus. Now, it's not how Jesus looked in his earthly ministry. He was very different, very symbolic. Not all of it is symbolic, especially what Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. See, that's not symbolic. That is absolute truth. I am the one who died but was raised to life. See, that is absolute truth. I hold the key, though that key is probably symbolic. I, he holds the key of death and of Hades. See, death and Hades are real. They're not symbolic. So, But for the most part, these are symbols, the lamps, gold lampstand, the st seven stars. Here's what Jesus does with every single one of these letters. He chooses one, generally two symbols. Here we have only one. And that then becomes the highlight of that letter. So if you want to understand what is the significance, what's the main purpose, what's the focal point of this letter, look back in the very beginning, and what does Jesus highlight about himself? That's why we're calling this series Unveiling Jesus. Because when Jesus is unveiled, when we really see him as he is, though these are symbols, we'll translate these symbols, that is the focus, that is the purpose, that is what this letter is about. Now, we're going to see, if I can word it, we're going to see the backside of this symbol. The symbol here is the two-edged sword. We're going to see the backside of that is not the judgment that comes, but the victory. That's where we're going to focus on that. This symbol is found seven times in the New Testament. One time in Luke, six times in this letter, uh, this entire letter, this book, Revelation. It is different, the sword is different than the one in Hebrews 4.12, for example. The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's a different sword. It's a smaller sword 
And, and the one that he chooses here is generally, and I would go so far as to say always used symbolically in the New Testament. Now, I'm not going to go into all the different references in the New Testament to prove what I just said. We do see that this two-edged sword in chapter 1 is coming out of Jesus' mouth. Let me assure you, it is not because Jesus has no hands or arms, that he must wield the sword with his teeth. We find also in chapter 19, a rider coming out of heaven on a white horse. There's an army behind him. He has the name, the word of God on his side. And he is Jesus himself. That, this is his second coming. And he is coming to bring judgment on the earth. What is it that is coming out of his mouth? It is this very same two-edged sword. Now, here's what you're going to discover. This two-edged sword, every time that it is found in Revelation, it is always symbolic, not so much for the word of God, but for God's judgment. It is not just truth in general. It is that truth in which Christ will come to bring judgment. That's why he says later, I'm going to come and fight against you with this two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. So this is actually a stern challenge. And even though that is the focal point, I want us to see this backside of victory should we, should we not be of those two groups that he's going to judge. All right? Now we'll get there. Just give me a moment. In the very beginning, he says, I know where you live. That is, apparently, Pergamum is where Satan's throne is. Now, I think it would be fair to say that Satan doesn't literally have his throne in this city. The special thing about Pergamum is that it was the hub of emperor worship in Asia. Now, by Asia, I'm not talking about China and over there. I'm talking about Asia, a province of Asia Minor, where Turkey is today. All seven churches are found in the province of Asia. Pergamum was where the proconsul of Rome for that province had his headquarters. And that is where emperor worship was so strictly enforced, and no doubt why Antipas, a faithful witness, was put to death. He refused to bend the knee to the emperor, and he lost his life as a result of it. Domitian, who reigned in the 90s AD, is the one that they were called to worship, and the Christians were, would have nothing to do with it. They are challenged to not renounce their faith in Jesus Christ, to hold on, to be strong, to be a faithful witness. Not just, hey, just don't say anything like I renounce Jesus. Don't demonstrate that in your life, but be a faithful witness. Now, I realize that the word martyr in the Greek, martyros, is this word witness. It was only later, though, that that Greek word came to be understood as martyr. It, was, it simply originally meant witness, one who testifies. So in the face of persecution, testify. Don't just be silent. Don't just say, okay, I'm not going to renounce Jesus, but I am going to continue to testify to his grace. Do you see? Be active in your faith. Don't let your faith die. Don't let the devil in all of this persecution keep you quiet. Be a faithful witness. Witnesses they don't just witness by what they do, but by what they say. In our day, cancel culture is very strong. Cancel culture has actually led to suicides because the pressure from that, the people all around them being against them has been so oppressive, people have actually taken their lives because of it. 
as Christians, when we stand for what is right against what is wrong, you risk the danger of being canceled in our culture. I'm not saying that you need to be out there and plaster what you're against. I think as we read through the Bible, Jesus actually stands much more for what he is for more than what he is against. I am all for us being vocal against LGBTQ agenda, about the perversion that is coming into the church in a variety of ways for um, critical race theory. I'm, I'm, I'm all in favor of saying, hey, guys, let's understand what the Bible says. But perhaps I am not saying that we need to make it our agenda to say, hey, and start speaking out against everything. John the Baptist did that with regard to Herod, but Jesus could have, but he did not. I'm not saying that one was right and one was wrong, okay? But what I am saying is, as a people, we stand firm on what we believe. I don't believe that it is our goal to constantly speak out against what scripture can, can, condemns as sin, but that we speak for the gospel, for who Jesus is. Now, eventually, and it is inevitable, we will have to say, well, this is what sin is. Do you want to follow Jesus? Well, this is what sin is. This is what you need to flee from. And I hope you hear what I'm saying, but I am, I, I am suggesting that when the pressure is on, that when we are standing our ground on truth, that we not back down and that we continue to speak, speaking about Jesus, unveiling Jesus. Because he, in this passage, he's coming with a sword in his mouth. And here's the terrifying thing. He's coming against the church, or at least what's called the visible church. Do you understand the visible church and invisible church? The visible church are those who show up to church services that would say, I'm a Christian. The invisible church are those who are truly born again. Do you see the difference? This is a letter that's written to the visible church. That's important. Now, here's where I'm going. The next, the next section here, has that first section had to do with commendations. You have stood your ground. But he then challenges compromise. And I believe one of the main reasons why Perg the, 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 the church, the visible church in Pergamum was compromising was because of the pressure from the culture to do that. Don't stand so strongly against these things. Don't stand so strongly for Jesus. Consequently, many of them compromised. If I look a little bit more like the world, if I talk a little bit more like the world, if I just close my mouth against the issues of sin in my culture. See, I'm not suggesting that we don't say something. Uh, my concern is for some people, that's all they talk about. They just want to railroad the LGBTQ. When I look at the life of Jesus, I just don't see him doing that. He has a firm stance. Sin is sin. But he came to preach Jesus and salvation. Do you see? Now, I believe what's happened here is that many in the visible church have said, you know what? I believe that if my life, if, if I'm going to spare my life, then all I need to do is look a little bit more like the world. There are two groups that he points out. Now, notice how he says this. He says, you have people there. Now, since this is a letter written to the church, he's not just talking about people in their culture. He's talking about people who are a part of the visible church. These people have compromised. These people, in, in, in trying to look less radical and more like the world to avoid this persecution, they have adopted what he calls the teaching of Balaam, which simply two things. It would be food sacrificed to idols, eating that food, that is, and sexual immorality. 
Now, much could be said about this first one, because let's, let's understand. <clears throat> Around 42, excuse me, 48, 49 AD, in the Council of Jerusalem, Acts 15, that's, my, that's the text I'm referring to, the elders and the apostles gathered together. They recognized that, that Gentiles, just like themselves, were only saved by the grace of God and not through the law. But then they said, to make it easier for the Gentiles, can we just ask them to defer to four things? Two of them were food, not eating food, sacrificed to idols, and another one was sexual immorality. One had to do with the ceremonial law, the other had to do with the moral law. These and, and there were two others, were absolutely repugnant to Jews. And so consequently, he, he, he's, the, the council is asking, when we preach the gospel to the Gentiles, could you please ask them to defer to these four things? And it would make it so much easier for Jews to listen to you. Now, Paul, only five to seven years later, says, guys, it's okay to eat food offered to idols. As long as you don't do it when someone is there that's going to say that is sin, and then they themselves do it. In Romans 14, it says anything that's not done in faith is sin. For someone, for example, someone who believes that all alcohol, all consumption of, al consumption of alcohol is sin, to see someone else drinking that, a Christian, they themselves might say, well, maybe it's okay, and they start drinking alcohol, but they have a conviction against it. See, the Bible says that that's sin. See, I grew up in a church that was considered Sabbatarian. That is, that the Sabbath had changed from Saturday to Sunday, and you were not to work on Sunday. I grew up with that. I came to realize that Christ fulfilled the Sabbath. There's nothing wrong with working on, on Sunday, and that actually the Sabbath had not changed, but Christ had fulfilled it regardless. Can I confess to you, even though I had that view and I believed it was rooted firmly in the word of God, when I would work on Sunday, I would feel guilty. And I would realize I, I have not allowed my personal, my heart to catch up with my convictions about what scripture teaches on this subject. So there were several years in which, even though I believed it was fine to work on Sundays, I did not. Now, I'm not suggesting, hey, just go out there and work on Sundays. This is something Romans 14 says. Some people treat one day as special. Others treat them all as holy. And this is between you and God. All right? So for me, though, I couldn't do it in faith. But this is something that's different. These people are not falling into the category of 1 Corinthians 8 that Paul says, hey, just it's fine to eat food sacrificed to idols. Just don't do it in front of a brother who could stumble and that he could do it, but not do it in faith. That could actually undermine his faith. Just don't do that. Be considerate of him, okay? Two chapters later, he gets to another issue. And I believe that it is this issue that Jesus is referring to. He says this. Some of you are totally fine with eating food sacrificed to idols. It doesn't matter to you. Then idol is nothing. But understand this. Do not do it during one of the feasts. Don't, because generally they, they had something called guilds back then. Uh, let's say a goldsmith, he was a part of a certain guild. That meant a trade and they would have conferences. They would have feasts. And in many of these feasts, they would sacrifice to idols. So they would go to these meetings, they would indulge in the feast, but in that feast, there was a ceremonial offering of food to idols, and they would eat of that food, and they would drink of the cup that was offered to idols there, right there. And so Paul is saying, you're participating in idolatry. Don't do this. And I would suggest that is what is happening here. And all I want to say with this is that Christians or people who would call themselves Christians are compromising. And they're just saying, it's not a big deal. Sexual immorality. Are you aware that even Christians will choose to live with someone, not being married to them, having sex outside of marriage, and they feel completely comfortable with that? And they have rationalized it away. 
And they would say something like this. Well, you know what? Have you ever lied? Have you ever said something that wasn't true? Have you ever cheated on your income taxes ever? So you do sin. So why are you judging me because of this little sin? So apparently all sin is the same, and I'm compromising over here. You apparently compromise over here. So what's the big deal? And it's rationalizations like this. I mean, church, do you realize that this type of sexual immorality is so prevalent in the visible church today, in our culture? Hollywood preaches it. And and yet, you know what? As, As much as I believe that Scripture says that living a homosexual lifestyle is sin, I truly believe that the church feels so free to bash them, humiliate them, but cover their own sin up. And they themselves are sleeping with another woman or another man they're not married to. And the pastors do not address it. But I tell you what, they will certainly address the LGBTQ agenda. And my challenge is, church, why do we do this? Why do we insist on being so uh, visceral against the LGBTQ community, when Jesus found someone caught in sin, he didn't stand on his soapbox and start preaching against him. He simply said, repent. Stop living that way and follow me. Jesus is always the answer. Conviction of sin is important, guys, but you know what? It's more than just people living in homosexual lifestyles. It is so much more than this. Sin is sin. The consequences of sin will vary. And you can see that even in the Old Testament. But sin is sin. Sin is still offensive to God. I don't care how you paint it. I don't care what it is. Sin is sin. It is offensive to a holy God. And regardless, that sin must be paid for. And so Jesus offered grace. And I hope you hear what I'm saying and not what I'm not saying. I am not in favor of the LGBTQ agenda. I am absolutely not. It's become so popularized and so well accepted. But guess what else is accepted? Even more so. In the church, people calling themselves Christians, living with people they're not married to. See, that goes under the radar, even for pastors to preach on. They don't do it because they're afraid to offend so many people in their church. They're going to stop coming to them. The ties won't come in, and they'll lose their building, I guess. You know what? Let's, let's just shine Jesus. Jesus says, stop giving these rationalizations, eating food offered to idols, being able to, you know, having, living in sexual immorality. Don't let that stuff go under the radar because if you do, Jesus says, I'm going to come to you and I will bring judgment. Now, let me just say this. I have yet to find anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus speaks this way with his true bride. I don't see it anywhere. He brings some discipline, but to bring the sword of his mouth that brings destruction is reserved for those who are outside of Christ. These are people who are in the church, and yet their lifestyle clearly reflects they do not live for Jesus. The evidence is that even though they're challenged, they refuse to repent. Okay, if you refuse to repent, I have no other option. I will bring my judgment upon you. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. That was a severe, severe judgment. You can look right at that and look it up later. Severe judgment. Judgment, Peter says, must first begin at the house of God. The tares must be separated from the wheat. God will bring judgment. If there's a refusal to repent and you continue to call yourself a follower of Jesus, he says, I will bring the sword. Now, I want to move to this third one. Because those who remain true to him, those who are the faithful witness, regardless of what this culture, this world speaks against the church, acts against it, even if it puts you to death, he says, stand firm. And it says it this way, and it's 
This is the way it says it in every single letter to him who overcomes. A little bit of a different way of saying it, but this word overcomes. He who overcomes, or to him who overcomes. This word overcome is the Greek word for to the one who gains victory. Victory. He is telling the, the true church, not, the, not just the, the visible church, but the invisible church, those who are true followers of Jesus Christ, who live for him, and when they're challenged, they repent. They don't remain stubborn, heels digging, digging into the ground, refusing to listen to the commands of Jesus. But they say, yes, God, because my heart is to follow you. I do want to be a faithful witness. This is what he says. You will be an overcomer. You will gain victory. And to the victor, here are the spoils. Here's the rewards. Here are the blessings I'm going to give to you. Now, there's two that are mentioned here, and I'm going to spend the rest of my time on this. Number one, he says that you will. Re- I'm going to give to you some of the hidden manna. The second thing that we're going to look at is he says to them, I'm going to give you a white stone. And on that white stone is going to be a new name. Now listen to this. That only you know. Hmm. The hidden manna. If you were to look in Exodus 16, you're going to find the first time in which God allowed it to to rain. I, I don't know exactly how God did it. It does say that it was bread from heaven. But he says it was like dew on the grass. Every morning they waked up, they would find manna, which means, what is it, on the ground. Apparently, it, the taste was like bread, but sweet bread. It was small, like coriander seed, I believe it says. The people of Israel are complaining. Moses has the people look out into the desert and they see the pillar of cloud and in the pillar of cloud is the glory of God. And they are captivated by this glory of God. And Moses says, tonight, God is going to send quail. Tomorrow morning, he's going to send food, manna. What is it? It's going to be spread all over the ground. He gives some instructions about it. I'm saying this because this provision of manna was an expression of the glory of God, of the grace of God. Every single day, manna was provided to the people during that entire 40 years being in the desert. The day, the book of Joshua says, the day that they are in the, 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 the new land, and they get established, they establish their headquarters, that was the day the manna stopped. It is God's provision. It is a display of his glory, if you will. Moses was instructed to take a jar of that manna and hide it away in the Ark of the Covenant. And that is what this is referring to. That manna is symbolic of the glory of God's display in the the, the lives of the children of Israel while they were in the desert for 40 years of his amazing love and provision. It sustained them. It brought life. So this is symbolic when he says, I'm going to give to you some of the hidden manna. Everything that that manna in the Old Testament represented was to be given to them in John 6. Jesus uses this idea of manna, and he says, see, that's me. I am the bread from heaven, the true bread from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna in the desert, but you need to eat of me, and you shall live. So when you die and you go to heaven, what Jesus is saying is, I am going to give you this amazing provision of life for for all of eternity. This is your inheritance, and I'm giving it to you in full. And and it is going to be this amazing display of God's glory in your life. Now, I would say that according to John 6, we are eating of this manna now. And that manna then is a display of God's grace. I'm going to come back to that. God's grace, constant provision, God's te- the testimony of 
testimonies of God's grace in your life, how God provides for you. It is not just to some super saints that God has a heart for and seeks to bless and meet their daily provisions. I mean, God has some pretty amazing testimonies as far as how he's provided for me. And that is one way in which God has communicated his amazing, abundant grace and display of his glory in my life. And for each of you, God is, God is pouring out his grace in this form of a testimony that you can talk about. Okay? Now, this second thing, and this is where I want to camp out and close with. He says, I am also, should you overcome, should you endure to the end, come to the day in which you die, I'm going to usher you into this glory, and I'm going to give you a white stone. Now, many times, these stones were white because they were covered with plaster. And a name would be written on that stone. And generally, these types of stones would be used as an admission into a feast or a banquet. If you were to fast forward to chapter 19 of Revelation, we see a feast, we see a banquet, and it is the wedding feast of the Lamb. And only those who have truly followed Jesus will be allowed in there. See, you need that stone because that white stone is given to you as your ticket in, if you will. But there's a name written on this stone. How interesting. It's a new name. And only you know it. Is this some secret code that God is going to give you when you get to heaven? And oh, you can't tell anybody else. This is my secret code. And then you reveal it. And Jesus looks, wow, yeah, come on in. What a cool name. I like that one. I don't, I don't think that's what he's getting at. If you were to look further in chapter 3, look, at, look further in chapter 3. It says in verse 12, him who overcomes... I will, get, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. And I will also write on him my new name. See, Jesus, he doesn't just have a name, but he has a new name. What is that new name? Well, Jesus. I'm not going to disagree with that, but you see, the name represents something about them. Then everyone will bow at the name of Jesus because Jesus means Savior. Jesus actually saved the world. Maybe you've seen my little t-shirt. I love it. I got it a year or so ago, and it's a picture of all the Marvel and DC superheroes sitting on this long bench, and Jesus is right in the, right in the very middle, okay? And you've got Spider-Man and Batman and Superman, and they're all listening in, and Jesus, it's just one little blurb, and, and, it, and it says this. He says, and Jesus is, is speaking. He says, and that's how I saved the world. Yes! See, Jesus is Savior. He's Jesus. I mean, you, you could say he was Jesus before he was incarnate, I suppose. But see, then he accomplished our salvation. He died on the cross. He was raised from the dead. He secured salvation for all who would believe. He now has experienced and secured, procured my salvation. Yes, he's Jesus. Because Jesus now describes what he has done. Now, Jesus has a new name. It also says in Revelation 19 that Jesus has a new name, listen to this, that only he knows. Interesting. That only he knows. Can I suggest something to you? That this word know doesn't simply mean something cognitive up here. It means to experience. Here's my question. Did something happen to Jesus? Did he do something that only he has ever experienced to this day? And I would say, yes, it is. Well, what is that? And can I tell you this? He is the only one who has ever died and physically, bodily been raised from the dead. I would have no problem with that name on Jesus being resurrected one, or resurrection 
But see, I cognitively know that, but I've never experienced that type of resurrection. No one has ever been raised from the dead and given a new glorified body like Jesus has. And so now he's going to share this new name with us. One day we too will be resurrected from the dead. We will experience that name, that resurrection. So Jesus is going to have a name on this white stone. And see, I, I'm, I'm not sh convinced that it is his new name as much as it is your new name. And this is where this message is going right now. Every single one of you is going to receive that white stone. That new name that's written on your stone is an act of God's grace that no one else in all of creation has ever experienced but you. That measure of God's grace. That measure of God's grace in those specific situations. I don't know of anyone in this room but one person who at the age of 16 was in a car accident and they almost died and their best friend next to them did. And they were rushed to the hospital and hours and hours were in the operating room as the surgeons were removing glass from their body because they landed on the glass of the windshield of the car. Who was then told, you'll never be able to walk again. You're going to be wheelchair bound. But then the doctor came back later and said, wow, you know what? It seems like things are happening in this as days are progressing. You're going to be able to walk, but you're never going to be able to bear children. Be, your pelvis has been broken into hundreds of little tiny pieces. You'll never be able to. And yet when this woman was pregnant within five months, was healed, experiencing tremendous pain because of the weight of that baby on her, on her pelvis. And when she was anointed with oil by the elders of our church, she was healed and had the baby naturally and actually had five children naturally. See, that's my wife. No one in this church has been through that type of experience with God's grace in that way. See, every single one of you has experienced God's grace, and God has this amazing measure of grace to display in your life, and you're going to radiate that grace throughout eternity. Do you realize that the 144,000 had the name of God placed on their foreheads. They also had the seal of God, I believe they're the same thing, on their foreheads, and they are protected, Revelation 7. 14 is where get, they had this name of God on them. Can I suggest to you that this name that is going to be put on people's foreheads by the beast is not a literal name, and it's not going to literally be put on the forehead? Any more than right now, if you look closely enough, see, I have the name of God on my forehead. Do you see it? Look closely. Of course you don't. Because it's not literal, it's symbolic. I have been stamped with the seal of God. I have been preserved for his glory. His grace has been poured out upon my life. He calls me to be his own, and he has his name, his stamp of approval and acceptance on my life. He owns me. He will never cast me out. See, this is who God is. This is the display of his grace. Now, God is going to, throughout your life, he is going to display his grace so uniquely and personalized to you. And it is that grace, that testimony, maybe many of them, that will be represented by that name that only you know. Not intellectually, experientially. You have experienced this amazing grace of God, this glory of God like no one else. It is unique. It is yours. And Jesus says, see, that's the new name. In Isaiah, and I'm going to try and remember exactly how this goes. Forgive me, I did not look this up. Maybe I should have, but God's, I, the prophet, God speaks through the prophet Isaiah and says to Israel, you used to be known by a few names, one of which was deserted. But now I will call you Beulah. Beautiful. You have been known by 
a name as, uh, what is it, unmarried, and now you will be married. I'm trying to remember exactly uh, how that goes. But see, that is a picture of God's grace to Israel. See who you were before you came to me? That's all going to change. Because you're now entering into this covenant of grace, and I'm going to pour out my grace, much as I gave manna to the people of Israel in the desert, and, and grace upon grace poured out upon them. This week, God is going to pour out his grace into your life, and it will be a testimony to his glory. You know, in, Isaiah, in Ephesians chapter 3, it says it this way. It says that God's wisdom is multifaceted. And it has been poured out upon us. This multifaceted wisdom of God has been poured out upon his church. And we will reflect that wisdom of God, those purposes of God, the glory of God, the grace of God to angels and demons, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms as a testimony to God's glory. You are a facet of that wisdom. You are a facet of that grace of God poured out upon his people. You, in a very unique, personalized way, reflect the glory of God. See, my wife reflects Jesus' love and the grace of God differently than mine. She's gone through so many things that are different than mine. The, the things that I've gone through. But see, I've been through some things that she hasn't. I've been through some struggles and seen God come through that she hasn't. And same with you. You're going to receive a stone, a white stone, that's going to say very personalized from Jesus, this is my grace that's been poured out into your life. Rejected one? Oh, Look at how I have accepted you. Look at these fingerprints of my grace throughout your life. And they say, I have accepted you into the beloved, into as my bride, as my loved one. See, I, I don't need to look at, um, well, uh, Nikki Cruz and say, wow, I wish I had his testimony so that when I share my testimony, people would say, wow, that is awesome. Because my testimony of God's grace in my life is reflected. It reverberates throughout the heavenlies. God's grace personalized in my life, in your life. Very special. Nikki Cruz, God bless him. I, I, I think he's still alive today. I think he still continues to travel and evangelize unless he's retired. Um, David Wilkerson has gone on to be with the Lord, correct? What a man of God he was. A display of God's grace. Personalized. Different than mine and different than yours. I want to ask you today. Do you feel in some way that God has not come through for you? That for some reason, God is just withholding his grace from you. He doesn't do that for others. Why is he doing that for me? I'm going to tell you right now, that is a lie from the enemy. That is not true whatsoever. God's grace has been poured out into your life. And I'm just going to encourage you to do this one thing. Open your eyes and see it. That's all you need to do. Open your eyes and see it. The devil wants to feed you lies so that you can't see it, so that all you're focused on is this little problem right in front of me, or maybe it's a big one right in front of me, and that's all that you can see. Open your eyes and see God's abundant grace in your life. It's there. It's being displayed. And he's going to celebrate it when you meet him face to face with that white stone and that special name that only you have experienced on it, the display of his grace. Can you stand with me? You see, Antipas stood his ground. God's grace was poured out into his life. He lost his life physically. He lost his life, but he received this white stone. He endured he faced opposition. 
He stood his ground. He did not renounce his faith in Jesus. And God's grace was manifested in his life. He got one of those stones with the name only he knows. This is what you have. This is your inheritance in Christ church. This is what encourages us. This is what helps us to endure the display of God's grace. Father, thank you so much that you have personalized your grace in my life and in the life of every single believer standing here today. Open our eyes. Allow us to see the extent of that amazing grace, of that love that you pursued us with, leaving the 99 to run and capture the heart of this lost sinner. Father, some of the testimonies in this room are are beyond understanding. But truly, everyone has seen that grace. So Lord, would you encourage us that word today. Would you encourage us with this display of your grace in our lives? That we are victors continuing to march forward in this life, never being silent, being a faithful witness no matter what. Help us stand our ground. Don't let our enemy, the devil, shut our mouths. May we always speak of your amazing grace. This amazing salvation that you bought with your precious blood. And I'm just asking you, Lord, today, tomorrow, and every day this week, continue to show us that amazing grace. Personal our hearts with this, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.